are recording. Love it. Uh, I was thinking, oh, I got to share my sound. Derp. Um, I was just going to play the album through because. Yeah, on repeat. Yeah, I mean, these tracks are like so uh, long and insane. We have 45 minutes. So, yeah. Uh, can you hear? Um, my only song that I request is um, the last one. End of Asia. Asia yeah. yeah. What was that called? End of Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you hear this? Cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready if you're ready. I'm ready. Got my drink. Got my drink, <laughs> got my drink on. Got my smoke on. <laughs> got my smoke on, too. <laughs> uh, welcome to another episode of TNT. Uh, we here at TNT Radio each month like to uh, explore and celebrate different full-length albums from across musical genres, eras, communities, a uh, format that we feel is, is sort of lost in today's digital and algorithmically centered uh, music and world. So each month, uh, Ton and I will take you through some of these works and dig into their story and, and uh, uncover their impact on society and time. So today... We're going to be talking about a classic from the maestro, from the Japanese electric musician, composer, producer, artist, actor, activist, uh, and recently passed, Ryuchi Sakamoto. So we're going to be talking about his 1978 solo debut, Thousand Knives. TNT. 
Welcome back from that sonic wave that you just experienced, courtesy of Ryuji Sakamoto, uh, off of his 1978 debut album, Thousand Knives, the track Thousand Knives. Ton, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's, it's, it is our show. <laughs> but you're very welcome. It's great. Great to be here. <laughs> yes, I am here. It's our show, including you. Yes. <laughs> um yeah this this uh this record thousand knives and you know that was a slow build of raichi sakamoto that was a slow build you know it's when the the music really came in but you know there's another seven minutes of that song after after where we turned it down so it goes on for a long time it's a nine minute song (laughs) yeah it's a nine minute song uh the title track begins with a sakamoto reading Yin Yang Mountain, a poem written by Mao Zedong during his visit to Well in the Yin Yang Mountains in 1965. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the poem, I think the poem is from 1928, yeah. actually, is what I read. Is it? Yeah, that's what I read. Because I think he was maybe dead by 65. Is he? I don't know. This is yeah, not good possibly. research that we're doing this live. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he died in 76. We are we are not experts in history, <laughs> <laughs> nor music for that matter. <laughs> but either way, that uh, I think um, this was like during a time when he was like kind of infatuated with like China and Mao and learning like historical Chinese like history and stuff. So yeah, yeah, totally. Um, this guy's a badass. I don't know. Absolutely. From what I've heard, and since you know, I wasn't really you know aware of him as much prior to yeah i was gonna i was gonna like, ask like how familiar you were yeah i didn't not. really put a face to the name until really after he passed away mm-hmm. i knew a few of his tracks but i didn't put the name to his face hmm. until after he died for those keeping score uh this is the second album that we've done in a row of someone who recently passed away in fact he passed away uh merely two days after uh emil Sege, who we covered on our last show um digging deep digging deep i mean you know you can consider this the uh the life after death series if you want or the death is not the end sort of series i guess is what we're doing <laughs> of two uh two complete virtuosos in their own yeah. right what a theme what a catchy yeah, I mean, theme you know it's the end of summer end of life i mean i don't know <laughs> being reborn that's right uh, we're, we're bringing it back right here right <laughs> um so, you know, you said you had sort of heard some of the songs, but, you know, hadn't really ever like put a face to it or, or done, you know, any of the digging. Yeah, so what I are your... think it's more so like in passing of like reading about artists and then them name dropping certain songs and like, oh, I've I've seen that particular song name a yeah. few times being yeah. name dropped here and there. Yeah. Um, but didn't really, you know, put, you know, the name to that really never got around to actually just like all right let's really listen to this song and figure out who this is you know? yeah absolutely i feel i feel the same way um i'd never really heard of him uh up until he passed away and then i was listening i listened to wfmu a lot a uh, great radio station here in the new york city area and they sorry montez uh and they were <laughs> <laughs> also great uh, they were like a ton of different djs because they, they, you know, it's a freeform radio station. They have all these different shows that play all this different stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of their DJs, from you know classical uh, shows to like post-punk shows to like electronic, like sort of um, ambient type of of shows, like we're all like playing tributes in in yeah. honor of this person, in honor of yeah. Ryuichi Sakamoto. And yeah. I was like, who the hell is this guy? Why is everyone talking <laughs> about it? And so, like, one from there, I was like, oh shit, okay, this is a guy. <laughs> This is a that big one. Feeling that feeling is such, yeah. Uh, that feeling of like not knowing somebody really and being on the wave when everybody is like really on the wave and like posting images of him on Instagram whenever he passed away <laughs> and like it's showing up on your feed. It's like, <laughs> yeah, like you know, cool. But I wasn't on that wave. But damn, he influenced so many people that I actually listened to too. You know, what I'm I saying? could see that. Like, I could so absolutely like, see through, that. Just through the grapevine. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy because I have some of those records that he's actually produced without uh, actually even knowing. Interesting. He was on it, man. That's crazy. 
Yeah. That's and a Jordan Marauder levels of, of involvement. Yeah, it's like it's like kind of like that. It's like I bought the record just because I knew it was a good record and it was like a classic record during that time. And yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, he is you know across a, a huge varieties of genre uh of genres um you know he's done everything from you know sort of electro j-pop synth pop techno cyberpunk right. ambient sort of like paving the way for like techno and electronica um yeah you know there's a song off of his second album that a lot of people credit to one of the things that influenced hip-hop starting you know, like as far as like, you know, one of those like foundational beats that people lifted and then put into new tracks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just it's pretty incredible stuff. I was like really uh, pleased to like do the digging for this one because it's like one of those one of those dudes that like you, you hear like one thing and you sort of like unravel and unravel and unravel. And it's like there's yeah. just so much. It's it's mm-hmm. totally nuts. We can mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. we do a whole season on him. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think he's one of those artists that has really put in the work but also did the work but came at the right time at the the time of like technology and the evolution of music because this time for music was so pivotal for a lot of electronic music this was a lot and he was representing that era yeah you know discovering the first synthesizers yeah first absolutely machines you know refining those you know mm-hmm. those classic sounds actually you know yeah so I, I, you know, usually I, I save some of the longer readings that I'll that I, I find until later. But I think this one really kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. So forgive me for this, the length of this. But uh, I found this piece in Jacobin, okay. uh, which is a you know pretty left leftist magazine, <laughs> and um, they had an article about him. And it starts by saying, uh, "Japan at the turn of the 1980s was the place where the future arrived first. Its peculiar post-war geopolitical position." A, form, a former imperial power flattened by World War II, rebuilt with American investment, and cultivated as a bulwark against the spread of communism in East Asia, had created a chimerical society unknown to the liberal capitalisms and social democratic states of Europe. An economic miracle with deep social inequality and one of the world's largest communist parties and a powerful socialist party. But neither were allowed to have much effect on official politics due to a successful conservative parliamentary coalition formed in 1955. Meanwhile, the massive and militant student movement of the late 60s had broken entirely with that old left and had been repressed on a murderous scale. The result was a mess of social splits and fissures patched over by a strong traditionalism and top-of-the-line consumer goods. Extreme social and racial conservatism sat alongside the consequences of an unfettered consumerism that was, in the guise of the personal technologies of Sony, Nintendo, and Roland, preparing a new and immaterial life world. Japanese popular music underwent a creative explosion, a new form of smooth romantic vocal pop based on the resources of jazz fusion, gestated while increasingly austere electronic minimalism fulfilled the needs of design showrooms. Sakamoto was the artist who, perhaps more than any other, grasped these aesthetic contradictions. Orchestral syrup and brutalist sonic high-tech, precise, calm, and rending passion, the hermetic localism of Japan, and the global global flows of which was now a center, and pulled them together in their most extreme forms. The music he made between 1978 and 1986 didn't just reflect this world, but gave form to its inner aesthetic potential. Wow. Indeed. <laughs> That's a lot of value. That was a lot. Sorry, that was a long <laughs> one, but I felt like it really does like set the stage pretty well. It does, like, it does. Actually. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um... Uh, it's a lot of value. You don't get that anywhere else, guys. Yeah, I get that shit out of VR. Like, yeah. <laughs> you see how we just switched into like an audiobook right there? <laughs> now we're back into podcast. Uh, save you, save just, you the... Just long enough, right? <laughs> save the trouble doing that research. <laughs> no, it does set the tone. So, yeah. Well, you know, much uh, like you were saying in terms of like being one of the first people to really, you know, uh, deeply experiment with these like different types of synthesizers yeah. and music and different... Um, working with different musicians and different instruments and things like that. So, yeah. And being coming from a traditional, well, for him, a traditional music background in the sense that Japanese traditional African rhythms and drums and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, much but, like, um, much yeah, like Emahoye Sege, 
he was uh, basically enrolled in a, uh, a conservatory when he was like six years old to study piano, which is mm-hmm. a, an interesting through line that I wouldn't have not have mm-hmm. necessarily thought uh, worked together. <laughs> <laughs> Why so? I just didn't, I wouldn't assume like we had, you know, we kind of picked these two people oh, because right. they died close to one another, but like it turns out right, they both went right, to like right. this conservatory for piano at like age yeah. six. Like it's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, That's they funny. completely different yeah, continents, completely different worlds and contexts. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, thought that was wild. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, very similar in the traditional upbringing in, you know, music, music scholar. Yeah. Scholar. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was born in 1952. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died at 71 this past March, mm-hmm. and essentially, this record was recorded. What? Let's see, at Columbia Studios. Yeah. From a period of time of April 10th through July 27th mm-hmm. in 1978, which pretty much was a a couple years or more, eight years or so after he graduated college. But he was like 26. He was only 26 when he made this album. Yeah, if I did the math right, I don't know. If he graduated in <laughs> 1970. I think he went, just, I think he finished. Oh, I he think he maybe, entered I, in 1970. Yeah. He entered college in 1970. So, yes. Right. So, this is four years after he got out. If saying that he did finish school. In right. So, right. Yeah, because he, he yeah, did his bachelor's yeah, okay. and did his master's at, yeah, at so, Tokyo University. And then he's out four years out. And recording at Columbia Studios in Tokyo. Yeah. That's pretty nuts. On uh, uh, Columbia. Yeah. Uh, he was he was a session musician, mostly during his post-grad studies. Um, he was both playing music, he was producing and arranging. Um, so basically, yeah. he went, you know, kind of got his feet wet doing that and then went straight into straight into doing music. This, this yeah, music. The, right. Uh, and also founded a, a group the same year. He was a busy guy in 78. He also <laughs> founded the group Yellow Magic Orchestra, who uh, is incredibly influential in their own right in terms of yeah, you know, furthering I, those genres that I mentioned earlier and like putting out really great records. Yeah, um, it's so funny because like what came first, like him or the band or the band or him simultaneously? You well, know their first album came out in the 80s, so I'm going to say... I'm going to say him just in the sense of chronology. Right. <laughs> yeah, like Tokyo or what I was reading just a little bit of uh, yeah. about Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music is that there were like a few music schools back mm-hmm. in like the 1800s or some something like that or early 1900s or something like that. And then they all these music schools kind of combined and theater schools combined to make this university that's what is what's present right now hmm. and it's kind of like what's interesting that i saw i read was one of the last paragraphs was something about exchange program with like the royal academy or like uh other music schools around the country so i um hmm. it seems that you know they're prestigious um like kind of juilliard i'm assuming Sure. That's just my perspective. Yeah, I can I see that. You know. Yeah. And, um, but there's a few, I was looking at the alum, and there's a few pretty cool artists mm. that come from there. Who we got? Uh, this guy named Clark Randall, I think. Uh, he's a UK guy. Okay. And it's, he's a fine artist painter. And he's oh, okay. Painter. He does like kind of caricatures of, he, I guess, assuming going to, he went to that school and he's alum and like, I guess, painting like kind of surreal caricatures of Japanese day in the life of and portraits. But then he does like UK portraits, but in this kind of like caricature way, but realistic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In surreal kind of way. Oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah, nice. yeah. <clears throat> um, so uh, Sakamoto actually intended to basically he was studying composition and ethnomusicology, and sort of intended to become a researcher in the field. Um, he was particularly drawn to different world musical traditions, uh, obviously Japanese, but Okinawan, Indian, and African as well. Um, so he, you know, didn't really set out to be a career musician, and it. I mean, that as soon as 78 started, that's all he did for the rest of his life. Um, in addition to other types of music and, and art, but, um, you know, music was certainly at the core of it. Um, yeah, he got, he got, well, 
you know, his university was exchanged with all the instruments through MIT and Boston and through Massachusetts oh, and like by, uh, Bell Laboratories and all these people too. Hmm. You know, so the university got these instruments like the new ARPs and the Moogs and all this stuff because they were like the edgy technology nerdy thing to have in the lab. Yeah. You know, so he was playing around with these already in 74. Huh. Assuming. You know, yeah, I saw the kinda, I saw the different um, <laughs> instruments used on this, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like, want to read the credits. I think the credits that. are really good to read. I think uh, the credits are really good to read if you want to read the credits on uh, on uh, the personnel. Uh, yeah, yeah. The personnel list is huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Totally. Uh, so castanets. Uh, composed by Ryuji. Uh, there's a computer operator. There's a uh, fashion coordinator. Uh, the cover yeah. for this album is really dope, actually. He looks yeah. so rad. Uh, his outfit yeah. is really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so we had a, a fashion coordinator. Um, we had a, a drummer, a uh, synth drummer solo. We had finger cymbals. We had guitar. Some of the guitar riffs on this album are pretty sweet, by the way. Uh, they're like Prince level, yeah. like just like where it just like yeah. rips in out of left field. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, Marimba. We have uh, or- orchestrated by him, uh, performed by him, of course. Uh, oh, the photography cover. Uh, Maka- Makoto Lida. Uh, we have acoustic piano. Uh, we have a programmer, we have a recording supervisor, we have rhythm guitar, we have a synthesizer, we have a Brazilian b- bird whistle. Are <laughs> <laughs> just are just you know the, the credits, and then the, there's like four different types of synthesizers. There's a vocoder, there's an analog sequencer, there's an electronic drum kit, there's a microprocessor based Roland MC8 micro composer, which yeah. is a music sequencer that was programmed um, yeah. and played. Sakamoto. He, he he had a uh, a music programmer with him that was working with him. I have it down here somewhere. I think that might be someone who was in uh, the Yellow Magic Orchestra. The as fourth well. member, supposedly. Oh, the, okay. Sort of like the the mystery fourth, like producer yeah. slash like yeah, band yeah. member guy. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, so he helped him work on this album in the studio. I'll find his name eventually. I can find it. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, I like, just like the, the, for an album that obviously, like, if you listen to it closely, uh-huh. you can tell it has like a ton going on, right? It's very deep. It's super layered. It's incredibly yeah. intricately composed. Mm-hmm. But like at the, at first listen, if you told me there was like more than a dozen people credited on this, I would have been like, where, where, where's it coming from? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but as you listen to it closely and I'll tell you, listening to it in headphones versus listening to it in my uh you know just like speakers in in my living room different experience i have to say totally like well uh, how was it different i mean i I think it fills it it plays with your it fills sort of your hear your ears and like Mm -hmm. in this like more full way when i when i was listening to it on headphones i thought yeah um well he produced it he panned it he mixed it probably too yeah and the fourth track on this album which they say is sort of an homage to uh craftwork is that he does the instead of doing it in stereo the one beat as only part of the beat on one of the songs it goes back and forth from ear to ear and the rest of it is sonic like sonically layered like layered evenly but the one piece of the song goes back and forth and i didn't know that until i listened to it in headphones which it was like a like a kind of a delightful like oh what a scamp like what a good idea (laughs) (laughs) i need to go back and listen to it on headphones yeah yeah i definitely recommend it and you also i feel like you hear you know, because there's a couple tracks in here that are more subtle and like kind of like almost leaning into ambient yeah. type of music. Yeah. You hear yeah. a lot more subtle things, I feel like. Yeah. Um, you know, birds chirping, birds chirping or like random melodies that sort of appear. Yeah. It's you know? definitely a, a composition. Absolutely. Uh, I think um, the first, so this was whenever it was pressed on record, the one side was one full length. 20 minute 22 minute track or something like that which was be considered like one song and one mm-hmm. composition and then the mm-hmm. flip side was like three different songs or like t- two different songs or something like that um but 
it's I, I I you just explained it so well because it is clear and you can hear all these things because it comes from the traditional training from his university. Yeah, his composition training. Yeah, because he 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 is a composer. You know, mm-hmm. so every one every one of those sounds was produced or programmed by somebody to particularly. Arrive at a certain moment. Well, what did uh, Leonard Bernstein said? Like Leonard Bernstein said, his most uh, like Beethoven, Mozart, and all this composition music and written out is like exact music. Hmm. Like there's only one way to really play, and those are the instructions to play that music to make it sound like that because that's exact instructions huh. to make it sound like that. That's Interesting. what Leonard Bernstein said. So like this is exactly what you're describing and what you what, what you're hearing the clarity and like the panning and like the mm-hmm. birds chirping and all this stuff. Those are all uh, uh, not acts by accident. They're all, all. Are purposely in there for the experience of and telling the story of you know. I love this song. That's that's fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, this song "Grasshoppers," which is the third track on the album, uh, has a very like sort of traditional like you might see it in like a uh, a movie about Marie Antoinette or something. It's very like uh, yeah, you know, it feels like very like you know formal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> Marie Antoinette. Some of his early. Oh, it does. It does. It's very like high society. Like, exactly. Kinda, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I was going but for. With a uh, <laughs> Eastern twist with it, you know. Absolutely. Uh, some of his early influences were Bach and uh, Claude uh, Debussy, who mm-hmm. he once called the door to all of 20th century music. So it totally yeah, makes Debussy. sense. I love Debussy. I'm not. I honestly, I'm not familiar. <laughs> oh man, we should do a Debussy album. Man. Do Debussy. He was like he was like the. You know, I could just imagine dreaming. You know, if you're yeah. in a dream, that's Debussy, man. Because <laughs> you know? the rad. tones and the color that were brought were not really available prior to him. Hmm. Prior, yeah, it wasn't until him that brought this like color and soul or like this dreamy vibe to composition. I love that. Yeah, we absolutely yeah. got to do one of those. <laughs> uh, and speaking yeah. of a of a dreamy and sort of soulful vibe let's let's turn the music up on uh the fourth track in the album which is uh and apologies for this pronunciation uh das neue japanese electronic niche volkslied
Okay, welcome back in. Again, just another sonic wave coming over you with this track. I love it. Uh, track four on uh, 1978 album, A Thousand Knives, uh, by Rachi Sakamoto. Uh, that track is called Das Neue Japanese Electronisch Volkslied. And uh, I googled vo- what Volkslied meant while we were listening to that. And it's German, and it apparently means folk song. Yeah. So uh, people say that this is sort of his ode to Kraftwerk. Um, right. Who, you know, you could certainly hear that <laughs> here. Yeah, it's, uh, what is it? Uh, another electronic folk, Japanese folk song. That's, I think uh, that's the direct Oh, is that, is that the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Das new. I mean, yeah, da, a new Japanese folk song yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously, we're not experts on German. No, but <laughs> sputter two part on crap on um uh, <laughs> on uh <crap> rock. <laughs> but uh, the album, do we miss this? It was uh, named after Henry Michaud's description of feeling using mescaline in his writing of Miserable Miracle. I don't. I've never heard of this dude before. Neither have I, but I thought that was... I missed that when I was like kind of doing research the first time right. and kind of saw it after the fact. And I was like, wait, what? Really? <laughs> yeah, so he was like a poet and writing prose. Uh, he did art for Paris Museum of Modern Art. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of his writings was around psychedelic experiments and LSD and mescaline in the... He died in 1984. Wow. Born in 1899. What? That's, pretty, that's a long life. Good for him. Is that possible? How old was he? He would have been like, yeah, eighty. What did you when did you say he died? Eighty four. Yeah, eighty four. So he could have been eighty five if he was born eighteen ninety nine. Wow, that's crazy. It is a weird time to live through. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> that's wild. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So I had never read that, but it makes me want to research a little bit more. Yeah. I also like never. I never saw anything about him. Uh, Raichi Sakamoto. That is like experimenting with drugs or you know I, I never saw anything about that in terms of you know influences on his music or things that you know expanded his mind or so on and so forth you know sometimes you see that like oh you know so and so started experimenting with you know uh right, right you know right. mushrooms or whatever and then all of a sudden right. like their music got weirder i never saw that with him um, yeah i think um japan's pretty strict but it's true not until after maybe maybe while he was living in new york you know, he lived in New York for a he long, did live, long time. You know, I have so, a very fun, fun anecdote about him living in New York, uh, but we'll get oh, to yeah. that later. <laughs> um, but who knows? I, I didn't really, there's not very much like personal stuff that I really found about him. I know that like on some videos I watched, he's really influenced by nature and just like the city, like since he was writing, it was like not this particular album, but like a later album in the 90s. Yeah. where it was like kind of New York centric and he was kind of reinterpreting the New York sounds into these compositions that I was running through, which I will explain. Mm. It was like a Japanese interview. So it was, it was, it was like whenever he, when he was, when he passed away, I was watching this video. So yeah, yeah. It's good to revisit, you know, some of those. There's a couple documentaries about him. I didn't get a chance to watch any of them, but one is called Raiji Sakamoto Koda. And that is supposedly like yeah. really, really great. Yeah. I want to go back and, yeah. and watch that. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as like you know, some of his personal details, um, you know, there's there's some detail around like what kind of music. Like you know, I, I mentioned before the break, like he was really into Bach and and Claude uh, Debussy, but mm-hmm. apparently he also like really loved like modern jazz, like uh, Coltrane, right. an album. You know, we've done an artist we've done on the show, uh, Ornette right. Coleman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess he apparently like kind of fell in with like some some rebels as a teenager and was like participating in some of those like student movement protests, protests and things like that. He was really yeah. into modern art and John Cage, which like checks out as this you know you hear some of this music and it, you, you know yeah he's it, an it, art totally kid. He's, an, he's a composer art kid yeah growing up yeah who went through the modern art you know fine art system but the tokyo system you know mm-hmm. which was probably pretty strict too in tradition because he was studying traditional ethnomusicology stuff yeah so, and as you look at the rest of his career after you know this album yeah, basically this. like you he's absolutely like that guy <laughs> like he yeah, does he was, so many 
collaborations with yeah. artists and different composers and different styles of musicians. Yeah. Like, it's truly incredible. I mean, he he won an Oscar for composing movie scores. Like, he's yeah. I mean, just incredibly. He, he was like bred, but I think he was also in the hip scene. Like, he was in the cool hip scene. Like, he was still, you know, he was a nerd, but he was like making music. Yeah, you know, if you're in music and you're making music, you're definitely going out and like meeting the people and you're an art kid. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he collaborated with, uh, you know, Thomas Dolby, Iggy Pop. You don't you don't collaborate with Iggy Pop in the '80s and just like <laughs> keep it professional, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, uh, yeah, I think he was, he was all, I mean, and his collaborations are, I mean, are just nuts as you, it, as you it, go it, through the, the following decades. Yeah, it's funny because like, okay, he goes to university, goes to school, does whatever he does, and then he gets on this collaboration with this artist in 1977, and then with the, he makes friends with the ses- these session musicians, which become Yellow Magic Orchestra, mm-hmm. and then they just kind of take off because one of the one of the team members the band members like were working the music industry there is all uh, okay i didn't know that yeah. yeah and you know coming i'm assuming you know this is all hearsay i'm assuming he was essentially bred from the school into you know the recording the classical compositional recording elite i would i would say yeah i mean i think it absolutely yeah. like set a, a foundation for him and like you know basically it was allowed him to figure out how to do some of the stuff and just like move forward an incredible trajectory like it probably yeah. doesn't happen with everyone there but like yeah man it it certainly like took off for him in like a really amazing way yeah, um, and these band members helped him and they all helped each other along the way because a lot of these guys were like historians or yeah. you know music you know in collaboration through collaboration mm-hmm. it um, just kind of continued if people are interested in checking out yellow magic orchestra um i would definitely recommend their album solid state survivor which is probably you know some of the more like electronically like upbeat songs on this album probably sound more like more like that album um uh, but a little poppier it, you know it has like there's a really interesting cover of day tripper by the beatles on it uh which is fun uh, it's it's I liked it a lot. I think it's a good time, so I definitely recommend that. Um, What's to next? talk, <laughs> um, you know, to, to, to sort of speak more about sort of what he, you know, his music and what what sort of he thought um, in that same piece in Jacobin that I, I touched mm-hmm. upon earlier, he talked about his his you know, his own music and and sort of gave his own thoughts. Um, And he says, my conception of music isn't based on day-to-day time. In Japan, where music is everywhere, what we might call universal time continues to exist on the same basis as our day-to-day time. Uh, He suggests that that a properly everyday and popular music, one that couldn't really exist before imperial war and nuclear devastation imposed, uh, modernity absolutely on the country, is one that is necessarily bizarre, otherworldly, suggestive of another life beyond the pervasive social conformity that has been the subject of a century of Japanese art. So I think that's really telling in terms of how he approached music, both as this thing that it's not a linear, you know, chronologically based sort of thing, but also it's sort of a reaction to what's been going on in his country for the last 100 years. Yeah, it's expansion and it's expansion from all directions is, is definitely not linear but it's also very futuristic it's also precursor yeah. specifically this album precursor to all the video games and scoring and stuff that he's gonna do later because listen to it like yeah you know coming exactly. up <laughs> coming up in japan um i would i would want to think that he's surrounded by a lot of like culture like manga yeah, comic books. You know, mm-hmm. well, in the quote, the quote I was reading earlier talked about Sony, Nintendo, and Roland, like yeah, exactly, those, like, like brands. So you know? 
Japan is futuristic in general, anyways. You、mm-hmm. go to like, you go to downtown Tokyo, you go to Shinju- Shinjuku or whatever,、mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, it's futuristic. It's like a futuristic on a different level, you know, in a weird sci fi kind of level. And this music reflects that because it's an environment. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's, it's, you know, to sort of hear about his foundations in this like very classical compositional manner, but then. You know, he's both hearing music, you know, jazz, for instance, which is、uh, its own, like, sort of new form of musician and, and sort of a reaction to music in the US. Like, to hear, you know, Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and other t y p e of like musicians like that that were, you know, sort of like of the bop and like hard bop itch, like,、mm-hmm. um, to sort of hear that and take that and sort of, you know, obviously this is not jazz. <laughs> this, this album is not jazz.、Yeah. This doesn't sound like jazz, but to sort of hear that and take the, The inspiration of like the, the sh- like sheer fucking weirdness of it, or mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. like incredibly like off the rails it gets, and be able to apply that to like what he's interested in in terms of, you know, both modern art, but also these new instruments and it's like new technology that's coming out.、Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think it's like truly,、uh, Like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's really revolutionary. In yeah, in the, in the first song after、uh, the poem,、uh, essentially it goes on for however long and it switches、mm-hmm. keys, right? So, like, it switches、mm-hmm. keys into something a bit more somber, I guess, or more like laid back or something like that. Yeah.、But、there, it switches into a more of a composition. Now you're into like a scene. Yeah. Rather than, you know, like you're bopping around. You know, I, have a great, I have a great quote about that, actually, your idea of the key change.、Uh, so, Pitchfork has a great review. I don't say that very often. Pitchfork has a great review of this album. <laughs>、uh, that's a rare, a rare sentence you'll hear on the show.、Um, but, you know, they're talking about the album in this, and they say, as with all of Sakamoto's work, there's no distinction between pop and experimentalism. Nearly a decade into his career as a sideman, meaning as a session musician,、uh, Sakamoto's musical fluency is in full effect on this album. Each of A Thousand Knives' six pieces swerves with a deft touch through complex arrangements, playful voicings, and cheeky key changes. Right. So, I, I,、yeah. you know, that, that recognition shines through,、uh, you know, in a way that, that is pervasive even to the, to the nerds at Pitchfork. <laughs> that's, that's what really makes it is the arrangement. The arrangement is amazing. I think、yeah. the arrangement is what, as a musician, is what is the craft.、Mm. The craft is the arrangement. Yeah. Which I'm coming to learn. <laughs>、uh, another quote that I read on Turntable Lab、uh, says To truly appreciate the brilliance of this record, you have to understand how old it is.、Uh, Saturday Night Fever had only come out one year prior, and Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division. Was still one year away. It's old, man. For a Japanese man to think he could pop in America in 1978 with a vocoder fixed exotica romp like this, he may have well just put it on an Armani suit and climbed into the bath with an electric lamp. <laughs> Who said that? Turntable lamp. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty funny. That's hilarious. I don't know how I feel about that review. I don't yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> But I think it does, like, you know, it, it does sort of like channel this experience that I feel like I'm having where I'm like, This man is 26 years old doing this in 1978.、Yeah. You know,、uh, I was reading, I forget where I read this, but I was reading something in doing the research that was talking about how, you know, a lot of this like Moog and early synthesizer stuff had happened sort of like in the early 70s. And like、mm-hmm. how by、mm-hmm. the time this album came out in 78, like, you know,、um, punk was, was popping off.、Uh, you、mm-hmm. were getting the last drags of disco. You were getting、mm-hmm. like, you know, this movement into different types of, of, of music and genres. And they were saying like, That this was almost like a little late to the game in some ways, but you know, obviously, it, it transcends any of those other things. And in, in、yeah. you know, it is, is a very complimentary, like, great piece to also, like, you know, pair with fucking Mark Garson or something who's doing all that, like, crazy moog synthesizing, right? In like 72 and 74 or whatever. So, yeah, to put it into just to add on to that, it's like essentially it was the precursor of electronic music. So, like, like electronic music happened, all these synthesizers happened. So, people are like, you know, instead of plugging like quarter inches, now they've gotten to the point where there's a decent 909 drum, drum machine that. Is a classic drum machine, you know, that they didn't really make any other versions from.、Hmm. And essentially, perfect, he's, he's perfected the usage 
and found the right people to program and create this music as, you know, Jeff Mills perfecting the 99 drum machine, you know, playing with as an instrument, right? So he, these were the first groups of people to really take these synthesizers and these sounds that were never really been heard before. It's like the first time somebody heard like electric guitar <laughs> or the, the mic voice. Sure. Right. This, I would say this was like a little bit after he, he's, this is the prime time golden era of like, all right, like this is the classic stuff that's coming out now. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the first time that someone listens to the show and they're like, holy shit. Wow. I can't believe this is like a thing that's free and online. No, I'm just yeah. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Two people talking. <laughs> Never been done. Um, you know, to sort of to speak about like the, you know, kind of, uh, laying the context the context for like uh when this album comes out what's happening at least in the u.s um you know the bgs are all over the top of the charts uh andy gibb or the bgs has like five of the ten tracks <laughs> um the top album of 78 is the grease soundtrack so hand drive your way to that uh blondie in it number two which is fun uh, Steve Miller Band, The Dire Straits, Rod Stewart, Van Halen, Billy Joel, Boston, Foreigner. So, you know, we're getting into like in America, like classic rock and like that very like, um, you know, Van Halen's starting to get big. So, you know, they're starting to get into like that ballady, like sort of hair metal stuff. Um, so, I mean, this is just like so far and away ahead. different. Yeah. <laughs> ahead and different at that time. Yeah. Because yeah. this is what you were expecting in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very, it sounds very, it is, it's very yeah, like, exactly. you know, it's very, you could listen to this, you could listen to Kraftwerk, you could listen to, you know, you could move further into the 80s and listen to like Human League, you know, you can hear all that yeah. stuff like coming all the yeah. way through. Yep, um, exactly. It's really, for me, it's been great as, as someone who's like really been getting into all of that sort of 80s and <laughs> stuff lately. For me, it's, yeah, it's, it's so been Yeah, so this was, yeah, these, the, these are the pioneers. Yeah. Yeah, the pioneers yeah. are on their way out, guys. <laughs> no seriously it's yeah. like um, mm-hmm. the the main guy from from Kraftwerk just died the other year uh, Ryuji obviously died earlier this year mm-hmm. um, so uh, one other quote that I wanted to to read is is talking a bit about um, you know some of the influences and sort of like how this all, all comes out um, and they write Oh, wait, our music stopped. Hold on. I'm going to start that again real quick before I read this quote. <laughs> the album ran out. It's only 45 minutes. Um, so this is this appears in Spectrum Culture, and it's sort of talking about the album as a whole and kind of going through track by track. Um, but they write, as Sakamoto's work with the Elementric Orchestra would later confirm, the project is an anti-colonial, anti-exoticizing one that pulls from an uncontainable range of influences. Hard bop. Uh, apparently he cited Herbie Hancock. As a key influence, reggae, kraut rock, traditional gospel. Um, in fact, in one of uh, in the second track on the album, he buries the the opening notes of when the saints go marching in deep inside mm. of that track, and that's what I mean. You know, earlier when I was talking about listening to it with headphones, I'd never heard it before. Right, I heard it listening okay. to the headphones, nice. so that it was like that was cool. Um, funky R and B. Uh, we talked with that Belgian ar- author. Um, and basically just, you know, kind of citing all these different influences and talking about how he's trying to, you know, come out of this history that Japan, you know, um, existed in for, you know, they were saying a hundred years of, of just like very conservative, very standardized art. And obviously I post-war, um, you know, making a name for itself as a country and as a, as a, as a power that's not driven by, by war, like it was in World War II, um, you know, I just think it's, it's, I don't know, I guess I'm just like <laughs> sort of perpetually like fascinated by all of the things like enmeshed in this one fucking six track album. <laughs> yeah, this is an art album, dude. Did I say that already? <laughs> you might have, but I think it's worth, I <laughs> think it's worth repeating. Album. I think it's worth repeating. This is a art album. Yeah, it really, um, and I just, I had no idea. Yeah, I, it's not, I didn't have any idea. I, it just has to be. <laughs> you know it just has to be cool name you know absolutely very it's cool just, name. It, it, and like electronic instruments for during this time like 
a lot of these I haven't really heard of, but you yeah. know, a lot of you know, I think Roland did a quote where literally, um, if I could write, I could, I could find it. I think you read it before, but the album was recorded in April through July. They use Core PS3100. It was a polyphonic synthesizer. The Moog 3C. You know, like if you're an instrument nerd, you could just go through here and like find all this stuff. And, yeah. you know, I was reading it and I thought of you, and that's a. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I'm not a gear slut like a lot of people that are uh, out there right now. I, I appreciate. I can appreciate like the the companies that innovate. Yeah, because I think music is a very innovative like uh, process in technology. Because mm-hmm. music is technology. Technology is music. You know. Yeah. Specifically, yeah. electronic music. So yeah. when comes new technology comes new music so but we haven't had a turnover in new technology other than computerization or inside the doll you know yeah, yeah. since 2000 auto-tune you know, so yeah auto-tune, <laughs> you know so like it's more about how we make music yeah still yeah. the recording session and stuff is still still doing it for like live rock punk other yeah. times music this is how they did it you know mm-hmm. but now you know prior you can you you can program all this now by yourself in ableton through midi i mean shit you, you could do a lot of this on your iphone you could do yeah, a lot of this yeah yeah if you, you could create it. a whole song on tiktok yeah you know? exactly like, like yeah so like the process that to go about to put this together with instruments that were just like kind of like entry level like into the market as new instruments because you're you're marketing your instruments as like new level technology on top of like tubas flutes piano you know all that guitar you know all that stuff so like how are people going to receive it and it looks complicated (laughs) absolutely you know so to do that and then compose it and write it down Mm -hmm. is such a process yeah. And have other people play it and learn it and then have make different arrangements of it for your band is yeah. just mind boggling to me. What do you think logistically and like practically about how heavy and big those things were at this time? Like and try you know, it wasn't just like <laughs> yeah, it wasn't just dude. like you you picked a different key on like your keyboard or like on your you know, a, 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 you know, a click on your computer. You know, this yeah. was like big fucking cabinets and like you yeah know, they're like huge computers dude yeah <laughs> it reminds me of like our, taking rooms up dude our new order episode and they were talking about how new order in 1980 when they made power corruption and lies yeah. also like was experimenting with a lot of these new things like these, yeah. these sequencers and like yeah, um, yeah, different yeah, exactly. like synthesizers yeah. and stuff like that and they were saying yeah. like they were like spread out between rooms because these things were so big and like you know having all these crazy wires to, like connect up and all this shit yeah <laughs> it's totally nuts yeah. And uh, he was he he got to he got to be doing and record this at like a, a studio, yeah, you know, like a proper yeah. studio, yeah, with whatever money that he got because he he's a badass, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and to speak about how much of a badass he was, I mean, you know, Yellow Magic Orchestra lasts until '84, but even during that time, he was releasing solo albums. Right, um, he was working a lot. And then after 84, he did more solo albums. Uh, he was in a movie with David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, like dope. I said, he worked with, uh, he worked with E-Pop, Brian Wilson, never heard of him. Um, and then, you know, continued to release solo albums throughout the 90s and 2000s. Uh, he, he was in The Last Emperor or something like that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I skipped right over that. Yeah, he was uh, both in and wrote the soundtrack and won an Oscar for The Last Emperor. Yeah. yeah. Um, which was, I think, 84? 94? Yeah, I, I think I've seen that movie. I don't think I've seen that movie, in all honesty. <laughs> 87. Um, oh, but I will watch it again, though, because yeah, of right? the soundtrack. <laughs> but it was fun. There's a funny story where there's an interview where this, whenever he did The Last Emperor, he had already worked with that director prior, I think, hmm. with the David Bowie movie. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I don't but he had already worked with that director prior and then he had been offered to like score the movie already 
Hmm. You know, so and then he like came on set to meet the director, and essentially like they put him in the movie <laughs> again, <laughs> just by just for the hell of it. And then That's like, fine. and he was like, "What are you doing? I'm not an actor. I'm not an actor. I'm a musician." <laughs> and then he was like, "Well, I'll, I'll just do a really good score to like compensate for my yeah. acting because they saw like the cut of it." He's like, "Man, I'm so terrible." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have self awareness. You know, yeah, I, I will yeah. say that it's good to know your you, to be able to, yeah. to pick your lands. Uh, and to that yeah. end, you know, he wasn't oblivious to what was happening at the world at large. Um, you know, he got a bunch of musicians together to do uh, a track and in, in a benefit for an anti lineman line. Wow, anti landmine uh, organization. He he did a track that had Brian Eno and Kraftwerk and Cindy Lauper and uh, two of his his bandmates from yellow magic orchestra um he also after the fukushima nuclear disaster uh was participating in protests after the fact um so he was he was a you know he was aware of what was happening in the world he wasn't just like you know it was as like art rock not a rock but like as art uh you know uh, you know basically how much art like goes through this entire album and like it's basically like in its dna like he's not oblivious he's not solely living in that world he's also living uh, in the great yeah. the greater world i guess is all yeah I'm yeah to say. he he's comments he's commenting yeah and he's he's participating in the world that he's contributing to with through this music and yeah you know i think the commenting and the commentary through these various collaborative projects really set him up mm-hmm. you know to for such like so much work mm-hmm. you know who's just working non-stop yeah i mean we, you know are you we we're not even going to get through a third of what he did but you know and he also accolades. oh the accolades are nuts i mean he, he won an oscar he's got gold gloves he's got a bafta he sat on like film festival juries um it's just it's it's a truly incredible life like I, you're not going to get a lot of more Ryuchi Sakamoto's, um, you know, he founded a record label, uh, also during like the, I forget when he did it. Let's see. What year was that? Um, he did that in 2006 called, it was called commons with three M's, uh, three M's is a record label seeking to change the manner in which music was produced. Uh, he explained that it wasn't his label, but a platform for all aspiring artists to join as equal collaborators to share the benefits of the music industry. The name Commons cool. had three M's because the third M stood for music. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And he was very against like copyright and, you know, was speaking out against that and how it, it basically like disproportionately uh, benefited the music companies as opposed to right. the artists themselves. Um, I need to read up on his label. Yeah. It, it, I was, it, it's kind of like tucked in there at the end. And I was like, wait, what's this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, discography. He has, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like 21, mm-hmm. 21 solo studio albums. Wow. That's nuts. From 1978, which was This 1000 Knives, to 2023, which was 12, his album 12. Yeah. Uh, um, Thousand Knives was remastered and reissued by the label We Want Sounds in November of 2019. So uh if you if your record collector heads out there, you can go and, and find that somewhere, I'm sure. Um let's see, what else did he do? He composed composed the music for the opening ceremony for the ninety-two Barcelona Olympics. Um he wrote music for video games and also designed ringtones for Nokia. Uh, <laughs> he also this uh, this is fascinating. He oversaw live streams of his concerts that featured a remote clap function in which viewers could press their keyboards F key to applaud and the strokes would be registered on a screen in the auditorium. <laughs> 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 How cool is that? That's, That's so cool. rad. <laughs> um, um, his, his record's going for like 30 bucks on Discogs. That's a deal. Might have to, might yeah. scoop that up. <laughs> scoop it up, y'all. Uh, I mentioned that he had a, uh, there was a funny anecdote about him living in New York for a really long time. Yeah. And this, you know, if you didn't already love this guy before, let me, let me just read this too. This was in his, uh, uh, I think I was reading this on his, in his obituary. Uh, his attention to sound suffused his daily life. After many years of eating at the Manhattan restaurant Kajitsu, he recalled in a 2018 interview with the Times 
he wrote an email to the chef, to the chef saying, I love your food. I respect you. And I love this restaurant, but I hate the music. And then without fanfare or pay, he designed a subtle, tasteful playlist for the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the music was. I, honestly, if you can get a hold of it, that'd be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I wanted man. to hear the before and after. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so yeah, Ryuji Sakamoto. I mean, just you know, a, a true, a true legend. Uh, R.I.P. Unfortunately, as we mentioned before, he passed away at the end of March of this year uh, from cancer. So um, him yeah, and he was like a heavy smoker, I think. Oh, really? That's yeah. fine. Um, yeah, he did have throat cancer at one point, so that makes sense. Uh, Ton, anything else to add? about this album or about Ryuchi Sakamoto? Uh, I'm glad that we decided. We kind of like, you know, did this kind of last minute. We took a left turn and was like, <laughs> no, let's just do bit. this one. And then, yeah. But uh, it's nice to see a really good example of like, you know, uh, somebody taking the path of music and really doing it at a Absol- really high level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, yeah, that was totally blown away. You know, by I think the album itself is is great, but yeah, I also the think, album was really good. I also think for me, like learning all this context about him makes me also go back and listen to the album with a different lens, and so therefore I get more hype on the album too. So you know, it's a sort of like uh, you know continually reinforcing like relationship. That I have. Yeah, it's like another one in your you know in your cabinet to like really influence your your taste on you know. Yeah, it changes the taste just a little bit, and it's a good influence because he's done so much different things that you're, you know, if you're into movies, go listen to the score and watch a movie. You know, yeah. and really listen to the soundtrack. You know, and yeah. watch a movie in a different way. Absolutely, you know, or totally. something. You know, so. I love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it. as as we wrap up the show, um, just want to say thanks and thanks to Montez Press. Uh, for having us as always uh, take a look uh, listen to the archive of all their shows including this one Montez Press Radio uh, radio.montezpress.com uh, and feel free to throw them some throw them some money while you're at it uh, it's in the summer you probably didn't go on some trip you wanted to go on give them a little bit of cash <laughs> um, you might be our, going on a trip soon right? yeah I'm going on a trip uh, you know, <laughs> get out in the world see some things <laughs> Uh, undisclosed <laughs> location. Um, <laughs> we'll be back on Montez Press Radio. Uh, you might be listening to this show on Montez Press Radio actually as we speak uh, on September 27th. So if you're listening to it live, howdy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the next show that we're going to do, our last two shows of the year, folks, October, September and October. Uh, so frankly, it's about time we've done this. And we're going to do it at long last. We're we're doing the disco tunes, folks. So, the disco. It's it's gonna be uh speaking of Saturday Night, you know, we talked about Saturday Night Fever earlier. We're gonna be we're gonna be burning burning it down. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, nice. So yes. if anyone has any disco wrecks that they really yeah. want us to do on the show, please let us know. Yeah, we're get still out the, the we're conversation. Still, we're still evaluating options. Uh you can email us tntradionyc at gmail.com, tnt.radio on Instagram. You can go on Apple or Spotify. Rate, review, subscribe, uh, give us five stars or whatever the fuck, uh, whatever the rating system is. Do all that stuff. Um, rate us because we want to be rated. There you go. <laughs> I I require validation. Please. <laughs> My uh, life depends on it. <laughs> and give all me our, some value. <laughs> Tom, Tom, you know, Tom had a birthday. He's feeling, you know, he's just he's he's feeling feels you know he wants to make sure that he's in good standing <laughs> uh all of our old shows are on uh both of those places or wherever you get your podcasts so check us out uh ton thanks so much for being here this was a Thank blast you. uh we're gonna go thanks out for having me oh hey any, hopefully i can you, join next time you can come anytime you want all right <laughs> you gotta you gotta stand in your light. <laughs> uh we're gonna go out on the last track of uh a thousand knives uh, the 1978 album by Raiji Sakamoto. This song is called The End of Asia. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Oh.